Hello, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan, still recording from my deluxe bedroom studio, angry whispering at my adorable toddlers to keep it down every now and then. First up on today's show, we're going to be taking a look at sustainability-linked bonds, or SLBs for those in the know, just what in the hecking heck they are, who's selling them, and how an investor can interpret them. And then we'll take a deeper look at Amazon's announcement that the world's richest person, as of the time of recording, Jeff Bezos, is going to be stepping down as CEO and stepping into the role of executive chair, a move that may have raised more questions than answers. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. Now, the world of sustainable and green financing is flourishing. New ways of investing in ESG are popping up every day. The EU Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation is looking to make a big splash in the world of investors and issuers alike. Public companies and national governments are issuing green and social bonds. ESG ETFs is not just a double-barreled acronym, it's a double-barreled acronym that is so hot right now. And investors just want more of it. And in that vein, in June 2020, the International Capital Markets Association released the Sustainability-Linked Bond Principles, which outlines voluntary guidelines for companies wanting to issue bonds linked to their sustainability achievements. And some major companies have just started putting out their own SLBs for the first time. Now, I wanted to try and make sense of these SLBs, and I'm lucky enough to be able to call on a few people in the MSCI ESG research team that could school me on the intersection between bonds and responsible investment. And for this show, I called up Meghna Mehta, who is keeping it real in Mumbai. And right off the bat, I asked her whether a sustainability-linked bond is just a catch-all term for green and social bonds. Because they sure sound like the same thing. Green bonds are bonds where proceeds are ring-fenced to quote-unquote green projects, which are typically environmentally friendly projects. Social bonds are bonds where proceeds are ring-fenced to social projects. Examples could be, say, education, healthcare, nutrition, etc. There are a variety of projects that could be social. And, of course, you know, they do follow the um, ICMA principles, the ICMA green bond principles, or the ICMA social bond principles. Uh, ICMA is the International Capital Market Association that has developed these green bond principles and social bond principles In sustainability-linked bonds, we do not have any concept of ring-fencing the proceeds that have been raised. They're really general-purpose bonds. Proceeds could be used for absolutely any purpose that the company or the issuer of the bond desires. The only aspect that makes this bond a sustainability-linked bond is really the fact that an issuer of the bond would place a financial penalty, so really basically an increase or a decrease in the coupon of the bond linked to a sus- achievement of a sustainability target. It could be a carbon target, it could be a target linked to its employees, it could be, say, a water efficiency target, an energy efficiency target. It could really be any sort of sustainability target. Okay, so thank you, Megna. That clears things up quite a lot for me. If you're buying a verified green bond, you can feel pretty sure that your cash is being used directly to, say, build a wind turbine. Or if you buy into a legit social bond, that your cash is going to fund the construction of affordable housing. But buying an SLB is more like sustainability adjacent. There's no guarantee that your investment is going to be directed towards a specific sustainability outcome. 
but what a company does do is to set specific sustainability targets on a fixed timeline. And if the company doesn't meet those targets, well, you get a little bonus, a bigger, albeit modest, paycheck. And some of the big names that have come out with these bonds include Enel, the Italian utility, Schneider Electric, the French electrical equipment company, and the Swiss cement producer Lafarge Holcim. The timelines these companies are looking at are somewhere between five and 10 years. And while Enel and Lafarge Holcim have kept things pretty straightforward in setting carbon intensity targets, Schneider has mixed in both social targets and specifically the representation of female employees at multiple levels within the company and upskilling more than 1 million underprivileged people in energy management practices. And to be honest, the more I looked at these SLBs, the more questions I had. Which of these targets are gonna actually make a company stretch and try and do more with their operations? Which of these targets are more about PR or marketing exercises? And how do we compare these different bonds to each other? Do we look at targets? Do we look at payouts? Do we look at penalties? Things feel very complex and very specific and very idiosyncratic. And if these SLBs are going to become a mainstay of the corporate bond landscape, I need to know more. So I asked Megna, as an analyst and someone who knows a lot about green and social bonds, what are the kinds of things she is going to be watching over the next few years? And what does that tell us about sustainability-linked bonds? First of all, it's also a very nascent market. We just have a handful of issuers that have issued these kind of bonds. So we don't really have a large pool to study them and to really see, well, maybe um, a year or two years down the line, were these bonds achieving their target? Uh, if they were achieving their target, was it an easy target in the first place that was set, you know, primarily maybe say for marketing purposes or really to draw attention to the sustainability strategy and not really to really, you know, push themselves to achieve a certain target. So it's difficult to answer, to really make a judgment on the market as of now. Having said that, I think one of the positives of sustainability linked bonds is that you do have issuers that are, you know, placing this financial penalty on not achieving the target even if the target is, say, hypothetically an easier one to achieve than it's not a particularly ambitious target for the issuer, for example, even then, placing a financial penalty in public on uh, not achieving its target is quite a strong statement for an issuer to make. We will need to study a few more bonds to really see uh, how these targets were set and how the market is really moving. You know, were these targets realistic in the first place? Were they ambitious in the first place? And how they also link to the overall sustainability strategy of the issuer. And it's not just a marketing tool that they're using. So it'll take a little bit of time to study this. But um, I feel like it's a step in the positive direction. Bless. And that is why I like talking to Megna, because she can find a silver lining no matter the story. There's no real way to compare the SLBs issued by Schneider Electric and Lafarge Holcim and NL to each other to know which one is going to make the company stretch harder or do more. At this point, it's hard to know whether the bonds are more of a marketing exercise or a genuine effort by the company to try and improve itself. One question which I still haven't been able to answer is the investment case. Because at the end of the day, an investor in this type of bond is going to make more money if a company misses its sustainability targets which is a weird outcome, because taken one way, it's kind of like betting against sustainability. And whether investors buying these SLBs can actually say that their money is achieving sustainability outcomes is a little bit of a tenuous claim. So for now, I really think it's worth focusing on what Megna highlighted. And that is, these are companies that are making very public sustainability targets that are linked to a financial penalty. 
And whether or not that target is going to make the company do something fundamentally different, at the very least, it means lots more investors are going to be watching the company's performance and no doubt scrutinizing its sustainability strategy. And from the nascent, uncertain world of sustainability-linked bonds, we are going to pivot to the very big and the very established, to the company that employs over one million people and one that's run by the world's richest man at the time of recording, Amazon, that announced in early February that its longtime CEO and founder, Jeff Bezos, would be stepping down as CEO to become executive chair, somewhere around Q3 2021. And however you feel about Amazon, that is big news. It's big news for a number of different reasons, especially if you have an interest in Jeff Bezos' side projects like Blue Origin or the Washington Post or his multiple environmental and social charities. And it's very easy in the enormity of Amazon to lose track of some of the more important questions for investors. And the one I really wanted to focus in on today is the role of executive chair. Because without a doubt, as the company's CEO, Jeff Bezos is incredibly influential. So his move to become executive chair may or may not shift that. And I am not the right person to answer that question, which is exactly why I brought in Harlan Tufford, one of our corporate governance gurus based in and around Toronto. And the first question I put to Harlan was basically, why have an executive chair in the first place? I mean, companies typically, in the US market at least, will have a CEO and a chair. And sometimes, more often than not, the CEO and the chair are the same person. So what gives in Amazon's announcement? When you look at the why a company would want to have an executive chair to begin with, think about why chairs exist in the first place. What is, what is the purpose of this role? And it's really to lead the work of the board. And this brings us back to the, the perennial problem in governance, which is you know, agency theory. We have this board that's purpose is to oversee the actions of management on behalf of investors. And the role of the chair is really important. They set the agenda of the board, they delineate the boundaries of discussion, the tone of discussion in the boardroom. And that all has an enormous impact on how the board makes decisions and what those decisions end up looking like at the end of the day. Okay, so the role of chair, whether executive or independent, is very influential. When Harlan talks about agency theory being a perennial problem in corporate governance, what he's basically saying is that sometimes there can be a big difference between what the principals or the shareholders want and what company management or the agents of the shareholders are actually doing. And one function of the board is to keep an eye on what company management is doing and speaking out when it's not in the best interests of the company's shareholders. But in a situation where there is an executive chair, you could have some blurring lines. A CEO that has been working for years with the management team may not be the most objective person when it comes to oversight. So it's worth getting a little deeper into why a company would want to make use of an executive chair when there is a risk that the chair might have some conflicts of interest. Pretty big ones at that. And Harlan, as part of our corporate governance team, has been getting his hands dirty, looking at executive chairs at US Company to get at just this question. And his research efforts will be coming out a little more formally down the line, but for now, I wanted to get some red-hot takes for our lovely listeners. And it breaks down like this. Harlan took a look at the CEOs of US companies that finished their tenure between 2005 and 2020. Of these CEOs, about one out of every three would end up becoming an executive chair, just like Jeff Bezos is shaping up to do at Amazon. But crucially, 
the executive chairs and the ex-CEOs in Haaland's sample tended to have brief tenures of about a year before stepping down from the company altogether. And when they stepped down, the incoming CEO would usually take up the position of chair as well. So these short-lived executive chairs aren't really a permanent part of the leadership furniture, which means that they might be there to achieve something a little bit different. They're part of the succession plan. And so their, their role is to coach the incoming CEO on, on how to engage with the board, uh, how to engage with the management team they're now leading, and maybe to avoid some of the common pitfalls that they made in their, their first days as CEO. And after they, they leave their role as executive chair, the incoming CEO, at least in the United States, generally becomes chairman and CEO, uh, which reflects that about 70% of U.S. companies don't actually have an independent chair. Right. So for most U.S. companies, the executive chair looks a little like a holding pattern, a short-term setup to make the transition of the new CEO and chair just a little bit smoother. But what happens if Amazon goes a different way? Because sure, Jeff Bezos is certainly looking to make a little more room in his schedule so he can have, quote, the time and energy I need to focus on the Day One Fund, the Bezos Earth Fund, Blue Origin, the Washington Post, and my other passions, end quote. But even though the founder and soon-to-be ex-CEO will have his hands full with social and environmental charities, a newspaper, and space travel, Amazon has made no hints that Bezos' role as executive chairman is a temporary gig. And having the executive chair stay on as a more permanent fixture adds up to something very different than just being the opening act for the next CEO and chairman. In that case, the rationale is really more about preserving that kind of animating spark that the founder brings, that institutional memory that they have, the experience that they bring leading the company. But in terms of what that actually looks like, the day-to-day, I think it's it's different for every company. You may have executive chairs who are more involved with the board than they are with the management. You may have executives who are more involved with management than the board. That's something that uh, may not actually be clear to us for quite some time in the case of Bezos and Amazon. Right, so when a company like Amazon has a founder with the old Midas touch, it may not want to let him go just yet. There is something comforting in knowing that even though he's stepping down from the hot seat, he'll still very much be in the room. I mean, it makes sense that you would want the guy who originally built this crazy ride to still be around while things are so dynamic. But what Harlan is getting at is the exact nature of Bezos' day-to-day at Amazon as an executive chair, and how that is still very much an unknown. And that's because the role of chairman and the role of executive are very different things. In a more traditional governance structure, the executive team or management comes up with company strategy, and the board interrogates that strategy. As an executive chairman, it's not clear whether Jeff Bezos will end up being more involved in developing strategy or poking holes in the strategy that Amazon's management team puts together. And some investors might be concerned that he wouldn't be in the best position to scrutinize the strategy that he had a hand in developing. The independence issue is concerning, right? What does the whole board look like from an independence perspective? Are there more executives serving on this board other than the chair and the CEO? Has the board established you know, an independent lead director? Is there, is there some kind of counterbalance to the, the influence that, that management's going to have in these meetings based on these two leadership roles? Perhaps most significantly, how entrenched is this board, right? Have all of these directors been serving with this executive chair for you know the last two decades. And if they have, what does that say about their, their potential ability to push back 
to to make independent decisions that diverge from and may actually be you know diametrically opposed to the desires and the influence of the, the executive chair. And that is it for the week. As always, I had a great time putting this together. It was great to talk to Megna and get her views on sustainability-linked bonds, and particularly on understanding that taking something at face value is not a great idea in this new dynamic responsible investment space that is just taking off like no one's business. And Harlan left me a lot to think about. The complexity of a company like Amazon trying to square up with a CEO that wants to step down when that CEO is such an obvious center of gravity. The challenge in trying to weigh up the pros and cons of keeping such an influential person on the company's board while still expecting that board to hold management to account. But I can imagine there will be some investors that are watching the company's announcements very closely to understand just exactly what the executive chair is going to be up to come Q3 2021 and whether they'll get a simple answer to the question, who is running the company? A massive thanks to Megna and Harlan for their take on the news with an ESG twist. As always, they were incredibly patient with my endless questions. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you have it in your heart of hearts, don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to us. Any feedback you have for us is great. It helps us to get better and to get you what you really want to hear. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And we will be back next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.